Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 10th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and at inquiringshow.tumblr.com or on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings on to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiring minds and use promo code inquiring minds. And this episode is sponsored by SmartThings. You have a smartphone. What about a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home. And you don't have to be a tech genius to install and use it. Lights, locks, thermostats, security with SmartThings, it's all connected through a single app on your phone. To get 10% off your choice of either their home security, energy saver, or water detection kits, go to smartthings.com slash minds. Once again, that's smartthings.com slash minds. And finally, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or old-fashioned DVDs and CDs. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of my own course, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com. Last week, we were on hiatus celebrating Canada Day and the 4th of July. But this week, we jump right back into the space where science and society collide by interviewing a Nobel Prize winning economist. So my first question to you is, are you an organ donor? Yeah, of course, since I got my first driver's license. What about donating an organ while you're still alive? Would you ever give someone a kidney? Uh, I would think I would give a loved one a kidney for sure, uh, especially, but don't I, I need to be a match though. But- so that's the interesting question. Not necessarily anymore. So one of the things that uh, Alvin Roth, who is our guest for this week, has designed is a market for matching kidney kidneys, essentially, with people who need them. And so we talked a little bit about that uh, in this week's interview. 
But the question I have for you is, what would it take for you to give a kidney? Is it, let's say you knew that your loved one or you had a loved one that needed a kidney. Um, how close would that person have to be to you? Is it like, you know, someone in your immediate family, a cousin, someone you dated in high school, your favorite math teacher? Is it bad to say certain cousins and not others? <laughs> uh, I think it'd have to be pretty close because that's um, a really personal gift, I would say. But what's strange about this, I think you're suggesting giving one to a stranger. So there are people who are so altruistic that they will just give a kidney not knowing the person that they're helping at all. And I guess the question there is, would more people do it if they knew that they weren't just helping one person, but say... 10 people, or 35 people, or 100 people. And that really is how Alvin Roth has redesigned the kidney exchange market in order to make possible. We'll talk about it in the interview. So, you know, there have been economists who've predicted that that kind of an altruism, giving a kidney to a stranger, would never be popular. But in fact, Alvin Roth won the 2012 Nobel Prize in part for making that possible and for making that altruistic gift of a kidney have a far bigger impact. He was a professor at Harvard before he moved to Stanford, and now he's slumming it here with us on the left coast. Uh, but he's best known for applying economic models to solving real-world problems, like the medical residency match, for example, or the New York public school system admissions, and, as we've just been talking about, kidney donations. His recent book, Who Gets What and Why, is now available at booksellers everywhere, and I have to say it's a really great read, especially for people like me who often find economics either unrelatable or just mystifying. Roth not only simplifies theories enough so that I can understand them, but packages them in a way that makes them easy to remember and even easier to apply to my own daily life. So every time I pick up his book, I get inspired to redesign some aspect of my personal life or some part of my career. So he will be our interview for today. But first, Kishore, I hear you're going to tell us how science can solve some age-old mysteries. Going back to World War II, I think everyone can remember that iconic photo of the sailor kissing the nurse in Times Square. And it was supposedly happened right after Truman announced the end of the war. And uh, that image has been shared millions upon millions of times. Fast forward to 2010, a New York Times article came out trying to really understand who those people are, because that's been a mystery since the beginning of that photograph. Uh, and they found and identified a person in the background of that photograph, another nurse, who essentially testified that that photo was taken hours before the Truman announcement and said it really happened probably between like 7 and 3 that day. The announcement happened at 7 p.m. Eastern. And for once, internet comments proved helpful. So a group of physicists um, at Texas State University were reading the comments of that post, and people were talking about aspects of the photo. And what they did is they took this photo and started doing some analysis on it. And they found a particular shadow cast on the side of a building in the back of the photo. And doing some math, I'm going to fast forward through the math, they were able to figure out that that shadow was cast by a particular sign. And that sign could have only cast that shadow at a very specific time of the day with the sun in a very specific position. And so with that, they were able to determine the exact time on that day the photo was taken, assuming the photo was taken on that day, which they have a lot of records to indicate that it was on that day. And they figured out that photo was taken at 5.51 p.m., 
about an hour before Truman's announcement. That's kind of amazing. And it it reminds me of uh, an experience that I had in which science, using science generated a lot of hate mail directed towards me. And this was on one of the episodes of a show I co-hosted on the Oprah Winfrey Network called Miracle Detectives. And there was one story where there was this young girl who uh, apparently was very, very sick. And she was in the pediatric ICU. And the mother had to make the decision of whether or not to take her off life support. And she decided to, you know, make that decision. And then she on the monitors inside the ICU, all of a sudden, there was an an image that looked to her like an angel. And so she interpreted this as a sign from God that she had made the right decision, everything was going to be okay. Well, it turns out her daughter survived, in fact, got better. And so this was then purported as a miracle in the ICU. So at part of the sh- as part of the show, we came to investigate whether there was an alternative explanation, uh, maybe more ground-based, uh, for this image appearing. And so one of the things that we finally figured out had happened is that at exactly that time of day, in exactly that part of the year, the sun was in such a position that it bounced off uh, the doors into the ICU in such a way that it created this little flare into um, onto this monitor. But it took us a lot of kind of physics and weather mapping and, and figuring all of this out in, in order to convince people that this was actually possible. It took these physicists four years to do the math. Well, it took us about four days, but yeah. I, we had Hollywood helping. <laughs> but in any case, that's kind of awesome when science can come and, and bear uh, witness to that kind of a story. So I was reading Carl Zimmer, as one always does, because he's awesome. And as usual, he blew my mind, but this time with a story from my own field. Um, so you've probably heard the cliche, two brains are better than one, right? Sure. Um, that's often true, but not always. There's actually some really cool research showing that under certain conditions, brainstorming and group think work actually leads to less creative solutions. But that's a topic for another day. The internet, of course, is currently the most obvious manifestation of many brains working together and building something more complex than any single brain could understand. But what if we got more directly connected? So the internet is largely made up of our conscious thoughts, right? Things that we write down, things that we post. The vast majority of the computations and processing that our brains do, however, is outside of our consciousness. So what could we accomplish if we actually directly linked multiple brains and this, shared electrical signals. This is very creepy. Are you talking about actually connecting brains together physically? Yep. How would they do that? <laughs> well, at the moment, it would require invasive brain surgery. So, you know, people aren't signing up to do this uh, anytime soon. But this is of great interest, of course, to people who, are, who study individuals with epilepsy who already have implants in their brains to control seizures or to figure out where the seizures are coming from, and people who have paralysis and need, you know, to get their brain stimulated in different ways, or even Parkinson's disease patients. But of course, there is work that is done on animals too, to see whether these kind of brain-brain interfaces can not only teach us about how our brains work, but maybe even teach us about how we can put our brains together to do even greater work. So this week, Zimmer describes results from two studies uh, published in the journal Scientific Reports. And for years, Miguel Nicolelis and his team at Duke University has been working on this brain-machine problem, um, but also now on these brain-brain interfaces. So in these reports, he actually describes results from experiments in which they connected the brains of rodents or monkeys into brain nets. So 
think about it for a minute. To build these brain nests, they had to record neural activity across multiple animals at the same time. They had to then analyze that activity in real time and send it back to either those same animals or other animals solving a set of tasks. And so the tasks they used were things like classifying objects into categories or processing visual images or even predicting the weather. Things that are kind of hard problems that they felt that putting multiple brains together might actually lead to better performance. And sure enough, in these tasks, the brain nets, that is the multiple animal brains, um, consistently either performed just as well as individual animals or outperformed their single animal counterparts. So how do they know that it's not one of the singular nodes performing better uh, versus everyone being in sync and and coming to that conclusion? So that's a really good question. So one of the things that these animals actually do is try to synchronize their activity. And in fact, they're rewarded to doing that, for doing that. And that's part of where this research is right now, is can we synchronize brain activity and can that lead to anything meaningful in terms of our behavior? Um, so when we watch a compelling movie or listen to music or even sing in a choir, we know that, you know, lots of brains are being synchronized and we can see similar activity across multiple brains. And in this case, what they were trying to do is to see whether the animals could figure out how to synchronize their brains and then use that to perform, you know, different functions. So, let me tell you about one particular task I thought was really interesting. They had a couple of monkeys first trained to control a robotic arm. So one monkey might lift it up and down, the other one might move it side to side, and then they had the arm had they had to get the arm to do certain things. And I remember these animals don't have a joystick or anything. They're just doing it by thinking, right? Kind of cool. So then they threw in a third monkey to, you know, move the arm in a third dimension, and that third monkey wasn't really good at his or her job. <laughs> kind of screwing up all over the place. It turns out that the other two monkeys actually learned to compensate and fix that monkey's mistakes. Does wow. this remind you of anything? I think they you might be talking about this show in some way. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about this show at all, but I was certainly thinking about situations in which people were working in a group and they have to carry the workload of a person who's, out, who's not performing well. Oh, you're definitely talking about this show then. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. But anyway... I, it's unclear to me as of yet exactly how they're going to apply this research anytime soon, although people are talking about video game makers who are using kind of this kind of synchronizing of, of EEG wave activity and so forth um, in terms of getting people to game and, and play games together and so forth. But it's still kind of an interesting uh, way of thinking about expanding our ability to solve problems. Well, it's Comic-Con this week, so what I hear is that the Vulcan mind meld is just possible. That's what I hear from this. <laughs> well, with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Alvin Roth. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is 500 bucks, and a king-size mattress is only 950 So to get $50 towards any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. 
And this episode is sponsored by SmartThings. You have a smartphone. What about a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home. And you don't have to be a tech genius to install and use it. That's why they were named one of the top 10 coolest gadgets of the year by Time Magazine. SmartThings instantly turns your normal home into a smart home. Lights, locks, thermostats, security. With SmartThings, it's all connected through a single app that works on iPhone, Android, and Windows phones. I'm really excited about SmartThings because I'm going to use it to sleep train my four-year-old by turning on the lights when it's time to wake up in his room, all directly programmed through the app so I don't have to do it at all. So then he knows when it's time to get out of his room. And with SmartThings, you can do so much more like playing music in every room of the house as you walk in or even turn off your lights uh, when you leave to save energy. Right now, SmartThings is offering its three most popular kits at a discount for our listeners. Inquiring Minds listeners get 10% off either the Home Security, Energy Saver, or Water Detection Kit when you go to smartthings.com slash minds. It's a perfect way to get started with a smart home. For 10% off and free domestic shipping, go to smartthings.com slash minds. That's smartthings.com slash minds. And this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off of my series, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. In this course, which consists of 24 half-hour episodes and is available on either audio or video formats, I talk about topics as diverse as string theory and neuroplasticity, but I tried with every lecture to demonstrate these key concepts using real-world examples and relating them to the big questions that have come up again and again in civilization and on this show. I had a great time writing and recording these lectures, and my goal was to provide people with a set of enjoyable lectures that helps us understand the key concepts on which current science is built, but also updates our knowledge with the latest findings and sparks our curiosity for each of the wide-ranging topics, most importantly. So if you know someone who needs a primer to science, or if it's been a while since you thought about some of the things you learned in high school, this course was designed to fill in those gaps and instill a love of science in even the most unscientific thinkers. This special offer of 80% off 12 essential scientific concepts is only valid for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And let me know if you like the course. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Alvin Roth. Thank you. In your book, Who Gets What and Why, you focus on markets that don't have price as the determinant factor of who gets what. So what is different about these markets? What, why isn't price the driving factor? Well, a lot of markets, you can't just choose what you want. You also have to be chosen. So for example, I teach at Stanford University, and it's expensive to go to Stanford, but it's cheap enough so that lots of people would like to go. And Stanford doesn't choose its freshman class by raising tuition until just enough students remain, until supply equals demand. Instead, there's an admissions process. You you have to apply to Stanford, and before you can attend, you have to be admitted. And Stanford can't just choose its students either. They have to compete with Cal and with Harvard and with other great universities. So in many markets, there's courtship. There's signaling of interest. It's a little like finding a spouse. You can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen. So in these markets, matching markets, um, what is it that draws them all together? Can you, can you say that there are a couple of principles that apply to all of these kinds of matching markets, or is it just too specific given the market? 
The details matter a lot, so different markets are different, but there are some general principles, and not just to matching markets, but to markets more generally. Markets work through marketplaces, and to help the market work well, a marketplace has to make the market thick. It has to bring enough people to the market so that they can transact with each other. And then once you have a thick market, you sometimes have a problem with congestion. There are so many matches you could make, so many transactions you consider. You could consider that you you need help in considering them, in processing them. So markets have to deal with congestion. And lastly, they have to be safe and simple. It has to be that that you don't mind going to the market and you don't mind revealing the information you need to reveal to to find the good matches that you would like to make. So different markets deal with the problems of thickness and congestion and you know being safe and simple in different ways. So I wanted to actually talk about a couple of markets specifically um, that I found really fascinating in your book. And so, you know, at any point we can talk about them, but sort of the three that kind of drew my attention were the kidney exchange, um, where, you know, you're actually exchanging life-saving organs, um, the matching process for residency in medical school, because uh, that's something that a lot of my friends have gone through, and I find it really fascinating. Um, and finally, how do you get your kids in the right public school? Because um, that seems, you know, it's on the forefront of my mind now that I have a one and a half year old, uh, but also it seems like a particularly bizarre problem in urban environments like San Francisco or Boston or New York. So at any given point, if you feel that one of those markets is a good example, let's talk about them. Um, but let's start out with the kidney exchange, because I think in some ways um, that was the one in which it was most obvious to me how your work has had an influence on the lives of so many people. So how did you first get interested in the problem of the kidney exchange? So I got interested through the mathematics. I think often when I'm asked that question, people hope that I was close to someone with kidney disease and, and figured out something to do about it because of that. But in fact, a lot of what economists do when we're doing economic theory is develop simple mathematical models of, of exchange under some constraints. And one of the models that uh, was written about years ago by Lloyd Shapley and Herb Scarf was something they called a housing market. But, but just as a thought experiment, they said, supposing people could trade houses, but they couldn't use money. So that's a, a toy problem that's, that's good to exercise your mind with, and it allows you to understand a little bit what money does and why it's so useful, and also how you can organize exchanges without money. But of course, it's not very useful for thinking about houses. But in the United States and in most of the world, it's illegal to buy and sell organs for transplant. So when you start to think about kidneys, which are indivisible objects that you can't use money to allocate it starts to make sense to think about exchanging kidneys. And that's because people, that's because there's a big shortage of kidneys for transplant. There are about 100,000 people in the United States waiting for kidneys now from deceased donors. But we only get about 11,000 of those kidneys a year. So the wait is long. It's difficult. Thousands of people die each year while waiting. But there's another source of kidneys, which is living donor kidneys. Healthy people have two kidneys and can remain healthy with one. And what that means is if someone you loved was dying of kidney failure, you might be able to save their life by giving them a kidney. But sometimes you're healthy enough to give a kidney, but you can't give it to the person you love because kidneys have to be well-matched to the people who are going to receive them. And so you might be incompatible with the person you love, healthy enough to give a kidney and remain healthy yourself, but, but you can't give it to the person you love. 
And if you're an incompatible patient-donor pair like that, you might be able to do an exchange with another pair. Maybe I'm in the same situation you are. I'm healthy enough to give a kidney, but I can't give it to the person I love. But maybe my kidney is compatible with your patient and your kidney is compatible with my patient. So we could do a kidney exchange that obeys the law. No money changes hands, but saves two lives. And exchanges, of course, are are very economic things. They're, they're ways for people to make each other better off by trading. And that's what a kidney exchange is. And we've been doing kidney exchanges in the United States since uh, the early part of this century, since, since around 2000. But it took a while to get it organized well enough so that, it, so that today it's a standard part of transplantation in the United States and spreading around the world. So now if I need a kidney, I don't necessarily have to wait in line. I can canvas all of my friends and family, ask them if someone might be willing to donate one, and then submit information about us to an exchange. Is that how it works functionally? Well, that's almost how it works. What probably would happen is you would first be referred as a patient to a transplant center. And now you and the people who might be willing to donate to you would come with you to the transplant center and do the blood tests and other kinds of tests necessary to understand whether they were eligible donors and whether they could donate to you, and if not, who they could donate to. And so that gets us to one of the problems, which is that a transplant center has its own politics and its own organization and can put up a roadblock, presumably, for certain people who, you know, or, or you know, they, they have an interest in terms of keeping the kidneys instead of exchanging them across the country. So is that still, are you seeing now more um, cooperation between transplant centers as this kidney exchange program has become more successful? Um, and is there anywhere in the country that you're seeing where um, this still doesn't, doesn't seem to be the case? So that if, if you do have a kidney problem, you should avoid, say, I don't know, a particular state because, you know, they're not willing to join the exchange. Well, in terms of which state you should be in. That's actually more important for deceased donation. There are states with very long waiting times for deceased donation and states with shorter times. And it varies not just by state, but by organ. And that's why Steve Jobs got a, a liver in Memphis, Tennessee. The corporation that he founded isn't headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. But uh, the waiting list for, for liver transplants was shortest there, and he had good access to transportation and, and so forth. So, so he was able to get a liver there. Uh, so there are places where you can get a liver faster than in California or, in, or on the East Coast. Um, but for living donor transplants, if you're coming with your own donor, that is less of an issue where you are. Different transplant centers, though, are have different policies, as you say. And there are a lot of big transplant centers that try to match their easy-to-match pairs internally, do their own kidney exchange, and only show the, the, the national multi-hospital exchanges. They're hard-to-match pairs. That's not always in the very best interest of the patients. It's not necessarily in the best interest of the patients. And the way to think about that is, supposing I needed a kidney, and the people who love me enough to give me a kidney are all around my age, probably. They're my wife and my brother and her brother. And of course, if I could take one of those kidneys, that would be great. It would save my life. But at the same time, there might be a 25-year-old 
patient-donor pair who are incompatible, and the donor is an Olympic athlete, and my brother-in-law's kidney would save their life, and the, the 25-year-old Olympian's kidney would be better for me than my brother-in-law's kidney. So so if, the, if my transplant center says, you're going to be easy to match, um, let's just do it here, that might not get me the very best kidney that I could get. And it has the additional problem that it makes it that when transplant centers withhold their easy-to-match pairs, it makes it more difficult to match the hard-to-match pairs. So hang on a minute. Are you saying that if you 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 could actually choose or, or almost a designer kidney if you had the right circumstances? So, um, you know, let's say you really want that 25-year-old Olympic athlete's kidney. <laughs> um, do you envision a a way in which someone could get a more desirable kidney and and like how would that well, work and what are the ethics of that well no no kidney exchange is meant to get you a kidney that works for you typically it's because the person who wants to give you a kidney their kidney may be very desirable for someone but it's not desirable for you but but what i was just speaking of was even compatible pairs might benefit from exchange and notice the benefit is mutual right i might get a kidney that's better for me and someone else might get a kidney who can't otherwise get a kidney, for instance. So trade is meant to benefit both sides. Exchange is meant to benefit both sides. Now, I, you asked me about current problems facing kidney exchange, and I, and I answered with that. But in fact, kidney exchange has been a great thing for kidney patients because it used to be that if you, know, you got a diagnosis of kidney disease and you went home for Thanksgiving and told your family, it might be that your brother and your sister and some of your cousins all would volunteer to give you a kidney. But if they were incompatible with you, they would just be sent home and you would be left waiting on the waiting list for a deceased donor kidney. But now if you go to a, a modern transplant center, they'll say to you, you don't have to wait. We can enroll you in exchange. And if you're not too hard to match yourself, if you don't have a lot of antibodies to human proteins that might come about from having had a previous transplant that, that you rejected, um, then you'll be pretty easy to match and you'll get a kidney without waiting for a long time. So one of the other things that I think is really amazing about how you describe the exchange in your book is that you talk about what we can learn about humanity, our beliefs and desires from studying these kinds of markets. And it some of the conclusions that you came to after sitting the kidney exchange really flabbergasted me. So I, w- I want to get into some of those. Um, and so, but let me first pose it as a problem with, you know, let's say I do enroll in a kidney exchange and my brother is willing to give a kidney. Um, and we now can't do it at the same time because he lives in Vancouver and, you know, I live in California. And so, um, I get a kidney first from, you know, a compatible donor and now he has to give his kidney, but he decides he doesn't want to give his kidney anymore because now I have my kidney. So <laughs> what's stopping people, um, in that kind of exchange from, you know, reneging on their promise? Well, some exchanges we do simultaneously to avoid that problem, but increasingly we're doing non-simultaneous chains that are begun with a non-directed donor, a donor who doesn't have a particular patient in mind, and that allows every pair to get a kidney before they give one, as in the case you described, that on day one you get a kidney and on day two your brother will give a kidney. turns out when you look at the whole United States, we, we only have about 2% of those chains get broken. And that's low enough that it, that we get a lot of benefit from long chains and doing a lot of transplants. So let's think about that a little bit. But as, as you say, one of the things we learned from that is people are nicer than you, than you might suppose in the simplest kind of economic models. 
But I think it's a complicated thing. Supposing your brother loves you enough to give you a kidney, and so he enrolls with you in kidney exchange. Think what a great family story that will be from now on, whenever the family gathers for Thanksgiving, say. Uh, everyone will be warmed by the story. Now think about if your brother reneged and hadn't, in fact, given a kidney. Now there's a story about how your brother tricked someone into giving you a kidney and then didn't give his own kidney. That's a much more complicated family story to tell. So it's a little unusual to put that into an economic model, but it doesn't boggle the mind that, that there aren't that many reneges, right? It'll, it'll be a lot more demonstration of your brother's love for you that after you got a kidney that, that, that you got because he had said he would give his kidney that he went ahead and gave it. Well, here we're really getting into game theory, right? I mean, we're talking about a social construct that is then, you know, leading people to behave in a certain way, even though, you know, the, the sort of competitive, the selfish thing for him to do, of course, is to keep both kidneys, because who knows, maybe one of his kids is going to need a kidney down the line. So um, did you when you were designing the kidney exchange and thinking about the problem, and I guess we should back up a little bit and say, you know, one of the reasons that we talk about these kinds of chains now and use them is because you can have many, many, many more people benefit rather than if you do a simultaneous kidney exchange where you need to make sure that the operating rooms are ready at the same time. There's a lot of logistical problems that have to be solved. Um, so were you thinking as when as you were proposing these ideas of having these chains, did you th use game theory, what you know about it, you know, the way people behave to sort of anticipate what would be the outcomes? And, and were you surprised with the results? Well, we use something simpler than game theory in the particular paper where we where we proposed non-simultaneous change. We, we used cost-benefit analysis, and we said the following. Supposing it's two pairs giving each other a kidney, and instead of doing it simultaneously, which we always do when it's just two pairs, supposing we did it non-simultaneously, and on day one, pair one gives a kidney to pair two, and on day two, the chain breaks, and, and the donor in pair two doesn't reciprocate. That would be a real tragedy for pair one. The cost to them would be very great. They would have had a surgery that they didn't need, and they would no longer have a kidney to participate in kidney exchange. So they'd really be harmed badly. And so we never do those non-simultaneously. But now suppose a, a living non-directed donor comes along. That's a donor who doesn't need a kidney in return. Now we can organize a chain so that the every pair gets a kidney before they give one. Now, if the chain is broken, that's a disappointment. Someone was prepared to get a kidney and didn't get it, but they're not irreparably harmed. They haven't given a kidney themselves yet, and they can take part in next week's kidney exchange. They still have a kidney. So the costs of a broken link are much less, and that allowed us to explore the possible benefits. And indeed, the benefits are huge. There are now regularly long chains. The, the longest chains sometimes have 70 people in them, uh, and it's quite usual to have chains of 10 or 12 people. And the average size chain in the United States is about five people. And it used to be that a non-directed donor did a great thing by giving a kidney to one person. And now they can facilitate this whole chain of transplants. So all of a sudden, this altruistic donor is not just saving one life, but five lives or 70 lives in the case of the very long chain. Absolutely. A 70 chain, a 70 people in the chain typically has 35 transplants and 35 nephrectomies. Oh, so right. it's, a, okay. it's a big party. <laughs> yeah. So, the, but that's a much better Thanksgiving dinner conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> so that was the kidney exchange. I wanted to talk a little bit about what you learned from the medical residency matching market. So first, you know, how did this particular market come into your worldview? What got you interested about it? Well, that that's actually a little bit of an old market. The 
the first jobs that doctors have when they graduate from medical school are internships or residencies. And that's a job that began to be the standard first job around 1900, so the beginning of the previous century. And that market suffered a lot of failures in its first 50 years. Among them, in the 1940s, it was customary for doctors to get their first job two years before they would take it. You have to graduate from four years of medical school, but they were they were contracting for these jobs at the end of their second year of medical school. And that's very inefficient in lots of ways. It means it's hard for the the hospitals to tell who will be the good doctors, but it's also hard for the doctors to tell whether they want to be surgeons or internists. So that, that was quite a poor market. And they, they made some efforts to fix the timing problem and ran into a congestion problem. And then around the 1950s, they invented a, a centralized clearinghouse that worked very well for many years. And only later did I study that and understand why it worked so well. But by the time I studied it in the 1980s, it was no longer working quite so well. And that's because by the 1980s, there were starting to be women enrolled in American medical schools. In the 1950s, just about 100% of medical students were men. By the 1970s, it was about 10% women. And today, it's 50% women. And what that means is lots of medical graduates are married to each other. Last year, we had between 900 and 1,000 couples, so between 1,800 and 2,000 people graduating from American medical schools who wanted two jobs, not just one job. And that turns out to be a harder problem, getting them matched to two jobs in a in a way that makes it safe for them to show their preferences and, and makes them want to take the jobs that they've been matched to. Uh, and And the medical administrators had actually tried to address this problem on their own, and they'd started in the 1970s. And the 1970s are actually quite a bit further in the past than we often recognize. So in the 1970s, if you were graduating from medical school and you wanted to go through the medical market as a couple, first you had to have your dean certify you as a legitimate couple. And then you had to specify one of the members of the couple as the leading member and the the two members of the couple would then act as if they were single they would they would submit a rank order list of their first choice job their second choice their third choice each member of the couple would do that and then the leading member would would be put through the matching algorithm and would get a job somewhere and then the other member of the couple the one who wasn't the leading member would have his or her list edited to take out all the jobs that weren't in the same city as the leading member. And often that would produce two jobs for the couple in the same city. But it turned out the, the couples weren't showing up at the jobs to which they'd been matched. They were, when you looked in July, they were often showing up elsewhere and, and eventually they learned not to participate in the match at all. And the, the reason is what I call the iron law of marriage, which is that you can't be happier than your spouse. So if your first choice is two jobs in San Francisco, two particular jobs, and your second choice as a couple is two particular jobs in Boston, and your third choice is two particular jobs in New York. And instead of getting two great jobs in San Francisco, you get one great job and one mediocre job. Then the iron law of marriage says you're not going to be happy, and you're going to be on the phone trying to get those two great jobs in Boston. So before we could try to get two great jobs for people in couples, we had to ask them what they wanted. And what they want, of course, is a pair of jobs. And so nowadays, Medical students can indicate their preferences, not for what job they would like best, but for what pair of jobs the two of them would like. What's their first choice? What's their second choice? 
pair of jobs. What's their third choice pair of jobs? So, but there was also, there's also kind of a gamingness to the system, right? So if I'm a medical resident, um, why don't I just rank my preferences exactly as they are, right? So I remember having conversations with my friends and they're really trying to theorize and, 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 you know, anticipate outcomes and, and, you know, really try to gamble with these decisions as opposed to just saying, hey, you know what, honestly, the job in San Francisco is my number one choice. The job in Tennessee is number two. And, you know, so why, why can't well, they just do that? You can actually, you can, you can tell your friends that one of the things about the current way the, the national resident matching program algorithm is organized is that it does make it safe once they've finished all their interviews to put down their preferences truthfully. That's something that 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 we did. It's it's one of the things we study about markets and um and the process by which the medical match works is something called the deferred acceptance algorithm that is related to to the invention the doctors made in the 1950s. And it's something that that uh, David Gale and Lloyd Shapley studied in the 1960s, not knowing anything about the medical match. And that when I analyzed the the medical match. Historically, I found that that those were very, very similar things. And the deferred acceptance algorithm is what Lloyd Shapley won the Nobel Prize for when when he and I went to Stockholm. So um, one of the things that I proved about it was if you employ it in the right way, if you have the the students doing the proposing, that it it's quite safe for students at that point to state their preferences completely truthfully. Why? What, what can you can you explain the mechanics of it? Well, this is actually related to problems that we've also encountered in school choice in cities. In a lot of cities in the United States where there's school choice, the the way the choice is organized doesn't make it safe for you to confide in the school district what's your first choice, what's your second choice, what's your third choice. So let me give you an example from, from the city of Boston. In Boston, they, they had the following system before my colleagues and I helped helped redesign it. They would ask families for their first choice, second choice, and third choice. Then they would try to give as many children as possible their first choice. And when some schools had more children asking for it as first choice than the school had priority for, then they applied a system of priorities. If there was an older sibling going to that school, that gave you a very high priority. If you were in the walk zone, that gave you some priority. And for children who were otherwise tied, they conducted a lottery. So every student had a lottery number and lower lottery numbers were better. So so they tried to give as many people as possible their first choice. When they couldn't fit them all in, they would use the priorities to decide who got their first choice. And then with the students who weren't matched, they would try to give as many their second choice. And then they would try to give as many as possible their third choice. So it sounds very benign, but it's not safe to tell the school district what's your first choice. Because if you if you give them your true preferences and tell them what's your first choice, but your first choice is hard to get because maybe you don't have priority for it, then if you don't get your first choice, you'll very likely find that your second choice school has had all its places filled with students who listed it as their first choice. Even if you have very high priority for that school, even if there's an older sibling that goes to the school and you live in across the street from the school. So, so by listing your true first choice, which might be hard for you to get, you give up the chance of getting your true second choice, which you could surely have gotten if you had listed it as your first choice. So that meant that families had to think very hard about what to list as their first choice. And they couldn't simply decide what school they like best. In systems like that, they have to decide what's the best school they can get if they list it as their first choice. Now, the way we've resolved that system in Boston and a number of other cities in New York for high schools and 
Washington, D.C. and Denver and New Orleans, is we use a deferred acceptance algorithm. And that has the property that it makes it safe to tell the school district your preferences, because if you don't get your first choice, you have just as much chance of getting your second choice as if you had listed it as your first choice. And indeed, that's now also how we organize the National Resident Matching Program, how doctors get their choices. So once you get to the stage of writing down your preferences, you can write them down truthfully. Now, the reason I say once you get to that stage is because the medical labor market is a little more complicated than school choice, because there's this set of interviews that go before, and lots of discussions happen in those interviews. And unfortunately, many hospital programs are under some pressure from their administration, at least they think they are, to not have to go too far down their lists to fill their program. And so they would like to know when they list you among their top choices that they are among your top choices. So there are lots of discussions. These are against the rules, incidentally, but there are lots of discussions that loosely speaking say something like, we'll list you first if you list us first. And medical students are sensibly advised that if that 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 being asked that question being made that proposition is against the rules and that if it's made to them they should look the interviewer in the eye and say good let's do that because it turns out the interviewers who do this don't necessarily mean it and neither do the medical students there are other markets where so so the fact that doctors don't feel obliged to be strictly truthful to each other in that in that moment actually helps the match work better one labor market that's working very badly right now is the market for new lawyers who want to new law graduates who want to be who want to be law clerks for appellate judges and that's one of these markets that like the medical market in the 1940s is very unraveled it goes very early if you know a law student who is on his way to at the end of his third year of law student school to be a clerk for an appellate judge he likely got that job at the beginning of his second year of law school that is after he'd only completed one year of law school but law students don't break promises to federal judges. There aren't that many federal judges. And so a typical experience of a student who wants uh, a clerkship is that he only gets one offer and he accepts the first offer he gets. And the judges almost make that a condition of giving them interviews. That is, I'm the judge and you're the law student and you are given to understand either by the judge or through your law school professors that if you want to interview with Judge Al, you have to be prepared to accept his offer if he makes it. And he might make it right there at the interview. And that's problematic because you don't know if the you know Supreme Court justice is going to call you up two weeks from now. And that's what you mean by an unraveled market, right? Is yes. That, it's, that you're getting exploding offers, so you don't have information about what else the market might offer you. You also mentioned a while ago congestion in the market. What do you mean by that? Well, so so markets are congested when either it takes too long to to transact so that while you're trying to transact, other possible transactions might go away. Think about a hot real estate market where, where houses may be sold on the day when there's an open house um, or, or where there are just too many options to consider. So think about dating markets. Uh, there are a lot of internet dating markets now. That that's a story in itself. But but in an internet dating market, it's often the experience that women with attractive photographs get many more emails than they feel like they want to answer. 
And of course, if men are sending out emails that aren't being answered, they might be inclined to send out more emails, emails to more people. And that means they're going to spend less time looking at profiles uh, and, and making sure they're carefully matched. We see the same kind of problem with college admissions. Now that there's the common app, you can, you can easily send out a lot of applications. And, and the fact that you're applying to a college may be less of a signal of interest than it once used to be. So I have some colleagues, Muriel Needley and Sue Lee, who, who ran a study on a dating site in which they gave each participant what they called two virtual roses. So you could send as many emails as you wanted, but you could only attach a rose to two of them. And what they found is that emails that were accompanied with roses were more successful at leading to contacts because an email with a rose suggests that maybe this isn't a mass email. It's not a spam. It's someone thought about you before attaching a rose to to the email sent to you. And that makes it worth thinking about them. Because in many congested markets, remember, a congested market, there are more applications, more transactions to consider than you can give careful consideration to. You need some signals about who you should consider. And there are two kinds of signals. So in a dating site, one kind of signal is your profile. It says, look at my accomplishments and my good looks. Uh, I'm the kind of person who would be interesting to me. But another kind of signal says, I'm interested in meeting you, and that time spent talking to me wouldn't be wasted. And the the virtual roses are that kind of signal. We see the same thing again in college admissions. One of the things I say in the book is if you know a, a high school senior who's applying to a bunch of colleges and is visiting some of them, he should be sure to sign the guest book in the admissions office because the mere fact that that someone applies to college is no longer a very strong signal of interest by itself. But visiting colleges takes some more effort and is a better signal of interest. <laughs> so uh, a couple of years ago, probably in the middle of the night, you got a phone call from Stockholm. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. What was the experience like? Was it the middle of the night? It, it was the middle of the night. And we, we, we had just moved to California, where, where I now work at Stanford. So it was around 3 a.m., which is, you know, comfortably after lunch in Stockholm. And um, we had just moved into an apartment. We, we had moved in September, and this call came in October. And at that moment, we only had one telephone in the house, and it was in my wife's office. And she woke up, and she said, and she woke me up, and she said, I think the phone is ringing. And I woke up, and I listened, and the phone wasn't ringing. So I went back to sleep. But my wife went and got the phone, and, and fortunately, they called again. So, <laughs> um, So there I was, as you say, in the middle of the night. So I've always wondered, what if you just have, like, I don't, we don't have a home phone anymore. We just have a cell phone, which we turn off in the middle of the night. What, what well, happens they, then? Well, they, they would have awarded you the Nobel Prize, but not had you on their news conference that, that accompanies the announcement of the award. I see, I see. So, so what is it that you won the Nobel Prize for? Well, the, the citation, first, I, I shared the Nobel Prize with Lloyd Shapley. So I already mentioned that David Gale and Lloyd Shapley wrote a famous paper about the deferred acceptance algorithm. And David Gale passed away before this prize was awarded. I think he surely would have shared it as well. And uh, so I shared with Lloyd Shapley. And what they, the, the, the phrase that they associated with, with us was they were giving us the prize for the theory of stable allocations and the practice of market design. So there's a lot of mathematical theory about what makes a good match and David and Lloyd had initiated that, and I spent the early part of my career elaborating on it. And then there's the practice of market design, having to 
you're getting to to actually participate in markets and kidney exchanges in medical labor markets in school choice in other kinds of labor markets that I've spent a lot of time uh thinking about and 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 doing I guess market design is an emerging part of economics although it's a, an ancient human activity and it's meant to be a, a part of economic engineering it's it's engineers getting involved in making markets work better when they're broken so I want to end with a question about the future now that we have this idea that actually even markets that don't involve money really need designers and we have this emerging internet of things right how what do you see what do we need to do to you know improve our lives or you know to to um avoid some of the pitfalls of becoming a completely technological society can you give some idea of what you how you think markets should be designed in the future taking into account where we're going technologically well, certainly computers have changed markets a lot. Many of us now carry smartphones in our pockets. We've got marketplaces in our pockets. You you can connect to Amazon and eBay where you can buy lots of stuff. You can uh, connect to Uber and Airbnb that match travelers to drivers or to hosts. Uh, you can connect to LinkedIn, which might be a job market. You could connect to J-date that might find you a spouse. So we're ne- we weren't we we never used to be very far from markets and now we're really close to markets. But computerized markets do present new kinds of problems. For instance, problems of privacy. The, the there were many kinds of information that were public information in a technical sense in the past. When I buy a house, you can go to the Santa Clara County Courthouse and figure out what I paid for it. And so that that was never strictly private information, but now you can Take out your phone and go to Zillow and find out what I paid for my house. And you can compare that with with maybe my records in courts and in marriage and in arrests and in the news. So so we're going to have to think more than we used to about privacy. I think that may become a new civil right. Hmm. And so one of the things I, I took home from your book that I thought was really interesting was that, you know, a market is only free and successful if it actually has rules or a design. Um, so I want to remind our listeners that Alvin Roth's new book, Who Gets What and Why, is now available in all kinds of marketplaces, uh, including Amazon and all the other ones on the internet. Alvin Roth, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So just next year, I'm going to be applying through the lottery system to get my kid into public school kindergarten here in San Francisco. So this was fascinating to hear. But the question that came up is, how do you figure out that this is the right kind of model to apply to certain markets? Well, you know, obviously you do e- economy. I don't know. <laughs> That's what do this guy economy. does, right? You know? I, it seems like there's a lot more trial and error that probably goes on behind the scenes that we didn't hear about. Well, I think, of- I mean, I think the way he works primarily is by creating models and simulations and figuring out to what extent, you know, is, do, do 99% of the simulations lead to a positive result or, you know, whatever you're going to set your threshold to. Um, but I also think that, you know, this, these are really important questions. And this is, I think, why some, his work is so important. Uh, it's because he is tackling things that are life and death in terms of the kidney um, or really can affect people's careers. And, you know, in the case of the medical residents, I mean, you, you know, you want the best doctors doing the things that they are happiest doing since as a, as a you know, 
conglomerate or as a in the aggregate, uh, those doctors, of course, are saving our own lives. So what I find particularly fascinating about this is economic theory for a long time used a standard model for a human being. You could hear about this on a, a past Freakonomics episode about something called homo economicus that they'd use that would be very rational. And the markets that he's talking about, they started to, I think, delve away from that being the only model. So now you don't have a model of a human being that only thinks rationally, which is <laughs> not the case. And so uh, all of a sudden, it's starting to take in human nuance in a much more rich way uh, that I'm hopeful that this can be applied to many other different types of uh, of markets going forward. I mean, I think that's one of the things that is surprising about people is that we actually don't behave in ways in which we should a lot of the time, whether, you know, if we were just truly rational. And yet sometimes, you know, like, for example, in the case of the person who donates a kidney to someone that they don't know, it's a completely irrational act. And yet, in some ways, it represents the pinnacle of civilized society, right? It's a very ethical, moral thing to do. I do have to admit, though, after hearing that uh, idea and concept that if I give a kidney, it's going to help match down that could return and result in something better for a loved one that needs a match. I get it. I I don't think if I put myself in that situation, knowing that rationally would make me more incentivized to do it. I mean, I I, I agree. I that still have a hard time with there, it. Yeah, I I'm I haven't signed up to give up one of my kidneys either for any reason. And you know, I can I can rationalize that by saying, well, I want to hold out in case my son needs it, for example, or in case my husband needs it. And so you know, I I don't want to be in a situation in which all of a sudden I have a loved one who really needs one, and now I don't have one to give. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the ultimately what he's trying to say is that we need to start thinking about creating a kind of either a rule-based system or regulations or at least a market design that can benefit that market and that a free market that is effective does not just mean that it's a free-for-all. I think that's a good message for certain political candidates, not mentioning who. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash podcast, And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 toward any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors, and me, to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of my own 12 Essential Scientific Concepts course. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Networked Brain Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in, in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.